Let's remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. We are going to be studying John chapter 12, verses 35 through the end of the chapter. Let us hear the Word of the Lord together, please. Let me find it here. <laughs> Sorry. Having a hard time here. Here we go. Okay. So Jesus said to them, The light among you, there is light among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Where he is, and I'm sorry, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where, the, where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light or children of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what, you, what, we, what he has heard from us? And, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so, they would, um, so that they would not be put, to, put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come in the world to judge, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, it is Advent season here at Grace, and uh, we're excited about it. As I've noted last week, I'm, this is my, one of my favorite times of the year, um, kind of looking into how God you know, just sets up for us an anticipation and like Josh said, uh, re-centers us about what Christmas should be and maybe sometimes what Christmas becomes um, by all of our frantic activity during this time of year. Not bad activity, but sometimes it can just get distracted from the things that matter most. And um, me and Amanda were, uh, uh, were at, uh, I guess I should say Amanda and I, were at uh, home at, um, where were we at? Ho Hobby Lobby yesterday. And you go down through all the different aisles, and you're looking for all your decorations, which, by the way, by this point, had already been ravaged pretty well. And, uh, but there's always one aisle. They always have different themes in each aisle. But one of the aisles, of course, is that kind of magical Christmas aisle, right, where everything is just kind of like the magic of Christmas. It, it's not really about Christ and Christmas, but it's just kind of the magic of Christmas. And so everything's got believe on it, right? Believe, and it's all about kind of compelling us to still believe, right? Still believe that, you know, all these kinds of wonderful things that, that Christmas can be. It's, it's kind of trying to inspire kind of the magic of Christmas in us all. And there is something wonderful. There is something, in some sense, uh, imaginative and, and magical about the Christmas season. 
But when we press into what Christmas actually is about, we find that, that all of that is just kind of cover for something deeper, something more beautiful than, than maybe we were, are sometimes prone to see in our own Christmas traditions and whatever they may be. Here, here's an example. Have you ever been in one of those situations where like you were trying to convince someone, right? Convince someone of a truth. Or maybe convince something, someone of a beauty, something that's beautiful. And, and you're just, you're, man, you're in it to win it, man. You're, you are doing everything you can to lay on, the, you know, convince them that they need to embrace this truth or uh, convince yourself to embrace whatever beauty that you're trying to convince them of. I mean, there's a few examples in, our, in my everyday life that I, that, um, that I think are really, really important that people should be convinced of their superiority. They should be convinced of their beauty. One of those is the sweet potato. The sweet potato is beautiful. And at Thanksgiving, I'm reminded of how wonderful the sweet potato is. And I have spent 17 long years trying to convince my wife of the beauty of the sweet potato, and she has yet to believe in the sweet potato. She will not touch a sweet potato. She will not make me a sweet potato casserole. Her mother has to drive all the way from Knoxville to bring me a sweet potato casserole if I'm going to eat one at Thanksgiving. That's how wonderful this thing is. I'm, I, and I found out to my dismay this morning that our brother Ben has something against pumpkins. Can we all rebuke him publicly right now for this, this reality? Like, I mean, pumpkins, man. It's like, this is what Thanksgiving is all about. In fact, I think the pilgrims would have a problem with this, right? I mean, I'm kind of convinced that the Salem witch trials were people being put on trial because of something they said about pumpkins and sweet potatoes. You just can't, you can't see it any other way, right? That's probably what it's all about. We probably made a big deal out of nothing, and it's really all about people doing something heretical as it relates to the Thanksgiving meal. I'm sorry if y'all like other things. I know a few of your families do all these kinds of weird, fun things for Thanksgiving, but for me, it's all tradition. My mom made one mistake in my life about taking us to a restaurant on Thanksgiving, and that was the last time she ever made that mistake, ever. She's supposed to be in the kitchen, sweating it out, making the, make the idyllic Thanksgiving meal. Um, but sometimes we just get caught up trying to convince people of the beauty of the things that we're so passionate about. And it's good, right? I mean, like, like I want you to convince you the beauty and the truth of things that I'm very passionate about. I'm sure you have things that you're passionate about. And, and sometimes the things that you're passionate about fall on deaf ears with me. And sometimes things I'm passionate about fall on deaf ears with you. It's kind of like someone standing before the Grand Canyon and all they see is a hole in the ground. We, we find that unfathomable, but sometimes this is kind of how we approach our things that we're passionate about. Like, we can't understand why people can't see the majesty of whatever it is that we're convincing other people about. Well, today in our sermon, we're coming to the end of Jesus' public ministry. We've said this many times. Chapter 12 is this transition into Jesus' final public ministry. And after everything Jesus has done... They don't believe. It's still falling on deaf ears. And so the thing for you and I as believers, as we read and study this wonderful gospel to us, and we see this wonderful witness to us, we need to be reminded of this one central theme that I want to tease out this morning in John. That in the face of obstinate unbelief, the true Christian is one who trusts in the truth and beauty of Jesus sent to overthrow our blindness and our hardness of heart. That's really what the Christian life's all about. That it's, 
in the face of the, 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 the intensity of people's unbelief, their refusal to see who Jesus is, we still press into the truth and beauty of Jesus who has been sent to overthrow our blindness, to overcome it, because we can't overcome it, to overthrow the hardness of our own hearts, because we can't un- overcome it, and then see the full majesty of who he is. And so as we come to these final words, and really, this is really important, like someone's final words to a group, whatever that group may be, probably are their most important words. It's the ones that probably people are going to remember the most. And so Jesus' words kind of fall into that category. And, it, and we need to examine these final words. And in these final words, we're going to see three truths. A couple, oh, at least one of them is extremely hard truth. But there's some truths that we want to tease out this morning. These will be our headings for our sermon. We need to believe. There's an urgent need to believe. It's going to be the first one we're going to talk about. The second we're going to talk about is there are real obstacles, deathly obstacles to our, un, to our belief. But at the end, here's the joy, believers are vindicated. We're, believe, we're vindicated when we hold on to belief, when we hold on to Christ. So let's just talk about that first one and then start working our way through the text this morning. The urgent need to believe in Jesus. And that's in verses 35 and 36. Jesus says... Let's remind ourselves again of these things. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. So Jesus is still, in the face of this unbelief, he's still urging them, believe. And now he's pressing into, your time is short. There's not much more time that this, is, this light is going to be given to you. He's talking to the Jews, the leaders of his day. He's urging them to believe, to hear while they still have time. And Jesus and the Jews and the rulers have just continued to put a kind of a strong arm against Jesus. In spite of this incredible triumphal party entry of Jesus from last week, they're still, they don't get it, and they really don't want the king that Jesus has come to be. And in these first two verses, verses 35 and 36, he he urges two imperatives as he encourages them to believe while there's still time, right? To, to, To believe while there is still time. He says, one, to walk while you have the light and to believe while you have the light. These are two imperatives that Jesus would encourage these Jews to consider and they would be, we would do well to consider them ourselves. First is to walk while we have light. Now, what does the word walk mean? Well, we think of walk, we think of action. It's a work, right? It's work. Like we do our walking most of the time during what time of day? Daytime, right? Not nighttime. We, we tend to do most of our productivity during the day, not nighttime. I mean, we might have a third shift, people here and there, and that's kind of a byproduct of being in a 24-hour world where we have the technology to do that. But if you were to think about in Jesus' time, like nighttime shut things down. Like no one... Very few people did anything at night for many different reasons, but most of your productivity was during the day. And so Jesus is urging them, while you have light, work at faith. That what he's talking about here, that this walk is the work of faith. He's urging them, I'm giving you this grand light to see, 
And it's in this light that you are able to see. So now you must exercise. You must walk in this faith out. You must see while you have time. You must start putting the puzzle pieces together that God has been revealing. Like, like Ben talked about this morning in our Exodus study. What God has been doing since the beginning so that you might be able to start seeing what is actually true. What God has actually been doing. Why? Because, well, like I said a minute ago, night is a hindrance. Is it not? It is a hindrance. It's a hindrance for most of us even here today. It's a hindrance to our work. Again, we, it falls on deaf ears for us today because we live in a world that's kind of the tyranny of the moment. Because we just don't understand that. Like, you could call at 3 a.m. someone in your insurance agency, and you're probably going to get someone on the phone, or at least a computer, sadly, and get some kind of answer to your questions. You, you can go to a doctor any time of the night. You can call a, a, someone, a, a, a law enforcement agent. You can call the fire department. You can go to a supermarket virtually anywhere 24 hours a day now. So we don't get this. We don't understand the weight of this. But you need to understand what Jesus is doing here. He's saying nighttime, darkness is kind of final. It kind of represents a place where there's a time coming where that light prevents you from walking out your faith. Walking out your life. And so let's not miss the significance of this. Because nighttime shuts things down for nearly every activity. And, and think about Jesus' time in, in the pre-modern times, right? It was expensive to burn oil. And so that was left up to the wealthy to be able to have that kind of privilege, if you will. Or was left to certain festival seasons, festive seasons, right? So when they did these festivals, especially the Festival of Lights, right? They would do this because they would, they would do this to, to celebrate. But that was a rare thing for activity to go into deep into the night. And so what we're finding here is that Jesus is saying darkness is consuming. So while you have daytime, while you have light, or spiritual daytime, as it were, walk out your faith. Believe while there's time. And friends, you and I need to take heed to this message to the Jews ourselves. Because we're not guaranteed forever daylight. There are going to be days, even as we continue to travail this path of life, that we're going to fall into dark times. And what we are in the dark is who we are going to be in the daytime. We'll see this more in our second point here in a minute. And so what Jesus is trying to get us to see, as much as these Jewish leaders and these Jewish people to see, is light is not merely that sunlight that's radiating, but it's, a, it's the magnificence of the glory of God that is emanating. While you have the glory of God among you, Jesus is the manifestation of all the glory of God, as we've seen several times in our passage in this study so far. And so he, you and I recognize that, that darkness is like, that's where we live. It's greater. And, and so then, I'm sorry, I kind of lost my track there for a second. Nighttime is only, we may think of nighttime only being temporary. But God sees that he's speaking to us from the fact that there's a darkness coming. That'll be final. Where God's judgment will judge the world. And we won't have no more time to believe. And for many of us in here this morning, we say we rest in the fact that we have believed and we have trusted in Jesus and praise God for that. 
And my guess is there are some people in here who haven't. And we need to make sure that we take real, full, conscientious effort to, to think about the spiritual darkness that you and I live in, because that's who we are. We're children of the darkness. We're children that have been born into this darkness. And Jesus comes in to remind us that not only are we to walk in out our faith while there's still time, but we are to believe while there's still light. And that's where he gets into this next passage. He is why? So that you may be sons of God, that you may be children of God. If walking out, walking means to work out our faith, believing is the real heart of our faith, right? We have been born as children of the darkness. Our father, whether we like it or not, outside of Christ, before we met Christ, is the father of lies. And that father cares nothing for the, bit, for the welfare of his children. And fathers like this leave their children completely defenseless to the darkness of that, that they get consumed in in this world. We talk about the fact that there's an epidemic of fatherlessness in the world, and that is true. But friends, understand that that epidemic started in the garden. When Satan tempted Eve and Adam to flee the protection of their own father in heaven. And so ever since then, all of mankind has been living under this spiritual fatherlessness, and it's rooted there in the garden. But yet Jesus says here in verse 36 that I'm offering you something wonderful, a wonderful inheritance, that you might be children of God, light you may understand the light of God. If you, if you live in the light of God, if you believe in the light of God, you will be children of God. That he sends his son to illuminate our path, our life, our world. It's the great reversal of the garden. Where you and I are born, every one of us born into the family tree of Adam who is living under the fatherhood of the what? Father of lies? No, because of what Christ has done, we are now born into the new family of God. Born into this wonderful place where we have an inheritance in Christ. Friends, the, the application here should be clear, but let's state it plainly. Walking and believing are essential activities of the Christian. And they're not just things we do when we first become a Christian. They're ongoing activities of walking and believing. See, the Jewish people had all these wonderful promises that God had been revealing to them throughout the ages. Again, Ben talked about progressive revelation, progressive movement, progressive covenantal revealing of who God is and what God has been doing. Of course, it all culminates in Christ this morning. And so when God calls Abraham and all of his posterity after him and all those who would believe, he's saying this is, this is both a beginning, but it's also a continuing act of walking and believing in our faith. The Jews had stopped believing. Ben mowed this really wonderfully this morning in Sunday school, if you were there, that they kind of got to the place where they were like middle schoolers or junior, sophomore, freshmen and sophomore in high school, and they, they, they kind of said, oh, that's enough for us. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, they don't need that. But that wasn't enough for them. 
So that kind of reminds you and I of a couple applications here, right? One is believe now. Like if you're not a Christian, today's the time to believe. But if you are a Christian, never get satisfied. Keep growing in your faith. Keep walking out your faith. Keep believing the light that you've been given in Christ. Because here's the deal. You won't stumble upon it in the dark. That's what Jesus is saying here. I'm giving you the light, and once it's dark, man, you're not going to be able to see it anymore. You're not going to just randomly happen upon it in the darkness. No, you need the light if you're going to see. And, you need, and if you're going to see, you need to believe while you have the light. And you need to walk while you have the light. But the problem is, again, as we've said this over and over and over again, no matter how many times Jesus urges them to believe, they don't. And so John inserts some commentary here in verses 37 through 43 that gives us the meat of why they don't believe. And let me be honest with you, some of us are going to struggle with some of the things we hear here. Let's just read it together. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. Why? So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what we have, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I, and I would heal them. He said these things because Isaiah had seen these things, had seen his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed, but for fear of man, they didn't confess it. Why? Because they loved the glory of man more than they loved the glory of God. Man, there's so much packed into this passage that we need to understand. Like, we, we probably the first question we need to understand, we need to kind of press, press into is, wait a minute, so why is Jesus urging these people to believe if indeed they can't believe? Because that's what he says here, right? They can't believe. Therefore, they could not believe, verse 39. They were in a position of their spiritual darkness that they weren't able to do this. And this is a tough one, right? But we need to understand his usage of Isaiah's quotes here to help us understand what's happening here in this passage. Well, because this first quote, verses 38, and really in verse 40, these are quotes that are taken from Isaiah 53 through 56 broadly. And this is a time when Israel's already fallen into captivity. And as they're falling into captivity, they're not doing well. They're giving themselves over to the gods and the pagans and all kinds of other worship. And uh, even though God had shown his glory to them. And, and this is why God is judging Judah and why he's judging Israel. Their disobedience of turning their hopes continually to the gods and to the idols of the world. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 135 gives us a wonderful definition of what an idol is. Verse 15, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. And those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. 
you become like what you worship. And idols are things crafted or ideas or values crafted in the human heart that we exalt above the God of glory, the God of goodness, the God of creation. And so what he is wanting us to see here in this reference is that the people of God had been given the light. They had already been shown this great light. That's why he says, makes this reference there in verse 41, Isaiah had seen these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. What's he talking about there? Well, that's a reference to Isaiah 6, is it not? And Isaiah 6 is that great throne room discourse, right? Where he sees God and he doesn't know what to say. And he's like, God, I can't speak for you. I don't even know what to do with you. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm totally unworthy to see what I'm seeing. But understand what's happening in that whole sequence. King Uzziah tells us in verse 1 of that passage, has died. And King Uzziah was the kind of final hope of Judah. He was the final great king who kind of set for protection for Judah. And now Uzziah is getting sick and he's passed on. And if Israel and Judah had all fallen fearful of what was going to happen. But what this meant was they were defenseless against the occupation of Babylon. And it's in that moment that God shows his glory. He shows it to the prophet Isaiah. And when he shows his glory, what he's telling his people of Israel is, put your hope in the light. Put your faith in the light. Walk in the light. Believe in the light while you have time. Well, it's a long way from Isaiah 6 to Isaiah 53 through 56, is it not? And things aren't going well. And so the result of that is what we find in verse 40. This quote from Isaiah 56. He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart. Lest that they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. What God has done? He's cursed them with blindness. He's cursed them with the hardness of heart. Because they would not see. Because they would not believe. And that's an incredibly heartbreaking reality if you think about it. Here's a people who had experienced shortly after this moment in Isaiah, 400 years of silence from God. They were wondering if their God even loved them anymore, if God was going to show up anymore. And then, boom, here comes Jesus on the scene, right? This is what the whole Advent season is all about. But when he comes on the scene... Because of that 400 years of hardness, that 400 years of darkness, and because of this, this, this prophecy of Isaiah against his, his, the Jewish people, what we're seeing manifested here in John chapter 12 is exactly that. You had the opportunity to see the great light and you wouldn't believe. That's really why you don't believe in Jesus. That's really why you don't see Jesus. Friends, can we draw a line from there to us too? No, we're not the Jewish people. We're not the Jewish leaders of this day. And we're not in, going to be judged like he judged in Isaiah because of what Christ has done. That is, that is to be sure. But it does call us to consider a couple things, does it not? One, that we must remember the great grace of God that has been afforded to us as we've heard the gospel over and over and over again. That we sit in chairs every Sunday. We sit in Sunday school classes. We sit in small groups and we hear the gospel. Are we taking that for granted? Children, teenagers, you grow up in homes where you have parents, for better or worse, they 
they made their mistakes just like my home and we do in ours. But you've had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And let me just make it clear. You can fiddle foul around in the darkness all you want to. You're never going to stumble upon the truth there. Believe while you have the time. If you're in that category, if you've been privileged to grow up in a home where you were in church all your life, both as an active believer, rest in that, take joy in that, continue to walk in that, as we said in the first point. But children and teenagers, don't neglect that. Now is the time to believe. Because any adult will tell you, after you graduate college and, or high school or getting a job, real world, kind of messy out there. It's kind of dark out there. And even the best of us in this room have had a whole lot of mud splashed up in our face because of the nastiness of the world. And, it's, and if you don't believe while well, you have time, you may have a hard time believing down the road. Be careful. Be careful. And that leads us to our Last point, but the most hopeful point we have here. That in spite of all of this rampant unbelief, Jesus is vindicated. That's what these last few verses are all about here in verses 44 through 50. Jesus is vindicated. Like, if they don't believe, what's that to God? Yes, God wants all to believe. But if they don't believe, that's on them. His king is still going to get the glory that he deserves. His son is still going to radiate the, the full, wonderful light of, of, of glory of God himself. And Jesus is vindicated. Guess what? So are you and I. If you're here this morning and you're holding on by belief, even in your hardest days, and you're holding on to these truths of who Jesus is, and you're, like I said earlier in the very first point, or the first opening of the, of the sermon, you're holding on to the truth you're holding on to the treasure. You're holding on to the beauty of Jesus. You, friend, like me, are going to be vindicated in the end. And that's wonderful news. It's really what Advent's all about. Because we're still walking the travails of a dark world. That's what Advent's all about. It's about light in dark places. And Jesus has come the first time. But he's coming again. And even if we're kind of zigzagging through, stumbling around, walking with a lamp in the world that we live in, holding on to the treasure of Jesus, it vindicates you. And in these last few verses, there's at least three ways that we're vindicated by Jesus. Number one, Jesus, we're vindicated by Jesus because he was sent from the Father. That's what it says very clearly here, he cried out, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. What Jesus is saying very clearly here is to believe in Jesus is to believe in the Father. It is to believe in God. You are believing in the one who has been revealing and setting in order all of these promises since the garden. To believe in Jesus is to believe that he himself is the manifestation, he is the promise fulfilled of the great serpent crusher who would come to squash sin's power over our lives, friends. 
To believe in Jesus is to believe in the Father. The serpent is, reigns, Satan reigns over sin, but when Jesus has come, now Jesus has come, his reign is over. We said this last week. It said it very clearly that in, in verse, whatever it was, 34, I think. The Father glorified your name, then the voice of heaven came, came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it, and they heard a, a sound of thunder. In verse 30, Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler, sin, Satan, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. To believe in Jesus is to believe that Jesus has ended the reign of Satan. He has ended the reign of sin. Now you might still walk in a world of darkness until Jesus comes to finally inaugurate the entirety of his kingdom. But that is no, that is no, that shouldn't be a fearful thing for us. Because he's ended the reign of Satan over your life. And of sin over your life right now. And we can live in the already and not yet promises of the gospel. Friends, we are free men and women in this room this morning. And we need to live like it. The world needs us to live like it. So that we can emanate the light of Christ through our lives. The second way we're vindicated is because Jesus reveals God to us. That's what he says there in the next point, right? And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. So Jesus reveals God he is the very image of God. Many people have undertaken this uh, uh, effort, the old Protestant liberalism of the late 1800s and the early 1900s, set out to try to diminish the, 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 the doctrines that have been passed down throughout the ages about who Jesus is, and they started to call into question all the different parts of the authority of the Bible. And this Jesus, they would kind of squash. Like They liked the fact that he was a good teacher. They liked the fact that he was a compassionate Leader, They liked the fact that he did good things, but they had a hard time stomaching that he was God. And the, the great J. Mecham, uh, J. Mecham, uh, sorry, J. Gresham Machen, uh, the great Presbyterian pastor and theologian who started Westminster Seminary in the early 1900s, took them to task in his book called Christianity and Liberalism. And one of the passages that he does a great amount of time exegeting, expositing, is this one. If you believe Jesus is not a doctrine-focused or doctrine-concerned God, you have got him all wrong. He makes very clear statements about what he, who he is right here in this passage. I am God. You see me, you see God. And so it's not just Jesus who's concerned with doctrine. It's Paul, too, who's concerned with doctrine. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Talking about Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now where did Paul get that from? 
How about Jesus? In this passage we're studying right here. Or from John, as we've noted many times, we've come back to consider it again, John chapter 1 right there, right? Uh, just, let's just read an extended portion here. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14, and we have seen His glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth have been given through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right side. He has made Him known. If there's any question about who Jesus is, let's let the Word speak to who he is and what Jesus has said about himself. Amen? So if you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. Friends, we are vindicated when we live under the King Jesus. The world will want us to abandon such notions. They would want us to quit being crazy religious wingnuts. They, they want that to be something secondary in our life or third level that's your private thing but jesus can never be private even if jesus is moving from a public ministry to a private ministry he knows it's not going to remain there because he sends his disciples into the world to do what to make jesus public again friends your faith can never be private and so we are vindicated even if we face a god I mean, we face a world that denies God. We will be vindicated by the fact that Jesus is our king. And the third thing that we're vindicated, we see our vindication in is Jesus speaks the word of God to us. That's what he says here in chapter 12. Again, there it is. If anyone hears my words, verse 47, and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. What is it? The word, that the, one, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus is the word of God. He speaks the word of God. And there's three things we've got to understand about this passage that help us understand the weight of what Jesus is trying to say here. Number one, that Jesus bears the weight of God's commands for us. God has spoken. God has set a standard and, and we have failed to meet that standard. But Jesus comes in and he meets that standard for us so that we don't have to live under the Father of lies, but we get to be adopted into the family of God and become children of light, children of God. Amen? That's who we are. And so he bears the weight of the word's demands on our life. But he not only bears the weight of it, he comes to preach this good news to us and to the world. And that he understands that this world needs this truth. This is why he continues to urge these people who, who obstinately un, do not believe him. He continues to urge this word upon them. Why? Again, because time is short. But when Jesus begins his ministry in the synagogue there in Luke chapter 4, it says in verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was the custom he went into the synagogue on the sabbath day and he stood up and read it was a scroll of isaiah how convenient is that it seems like isaiah is a big deal here right and by the way it was given to him 
So he didn't choose the scroll. He wanted his freedom. He just came up there and they were like, oh, here's some Isaiah, read this. And, and look what happens next. He enrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is, is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set the liberty of those who have oppre- are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And like a boss, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's wonderful news. Not only does he bear the full weight of God's law in your life and my life and bears the commands of God's word on our life where we fail to meet those standards, he comes and he preaches this good news to us saying, believe in me, I've done it and I've come to set you free. I've come to set you free. But don't forget what it says here clearly in this passage. You may think that Jesus is not He's trying to say he's not come to judge the world. That's not what he's actually saying here because we've seen in other passages. He actually does come to judge the world. We actually saw that just a few verses earlier. What he's saying here is, my work that I've come to do is to free captives. My word that you keep denying is the what will judge you. And so that's, again, doubly important for us sitting in here this morning, is it not? For those of us who hear the word routinely, not to take that for granted. And we'll be judged by whether we accept Jesus and his word or not. As we finish up this morning, I just want to give you a warning and I want to give you an encouragement. The warning is this. The last day is coming. We don't know when. We don't know how long it's going to be. My pastor and his typically home pastor, Charles Fuller, was asked the question one time. I think I've mentioned this to you before. What's your take on the end times? How much longer do you think it's going to be before Jesus returns? <laughs> and his only humorous wit that he'd have, he said, well, I guess, he's, I guess it's closer than it's ever been before. <laughs> Took you a minute, didn't it? <laughs> the fact is, is, it's very simple, guys. We don't know how long we have. The last day is coming. And for us to continue to put off and keep on punting the ball down the field is only to our own peril. For you're a believer here this morning and you you know the Lord's been tugging on you to do whatever it may be in certain areas of obedience, do it now for the glory of God. If you're here this morning and you have not yet believed in Jesus, quit punting the ball down the field. You have heard And you've heard clearly this morning, and I would love the opportunity to have that conversation with you. Quit punting the ball down the field. In soccer, we call it clearing. Quit clearing the ball down the field. Deal with it. Play now. Get in the game. But there's an encouragement. Those who are vindicated... Those who are vindicated are free, wait for it, to embrace the foolishness of the cross. 
See, the world says you can give you any number, a list of things that you need to do to become important. But when I read that, and I was studying that, I went instantly in my heart to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20, 12, and following. For the word of the cross, I'm sorry, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Embrace your foolishness. It's foolish to the world. Embrace the foolishness. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, he says, and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart that. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what, he, of what we preach to save those who believe. Hold on to Christ. Walk while you have light. Believe until Jesus returns. Your vindication is sure. Your vindication is sure. God, help us now as we finish up this morning.